Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 506. And I'm joined today by someone who's been requested loads, even though they've already been on. It's Raul Reynolds of Enter Shikari. And I need to tell you a little story here, because Raul was on back in 2015. And at the start of that episode, I said, hey, man, because we'd chatted a bit, but normally online. And we've continued that, but normally online. I was like, hey, man, I'm never sure how to say your name. Is it Raul or is it Rue? And he told me, it's Rao. Rao like cow, not Roo like moo. Now, the problem with that rhyme is cow and moo are quite similar, so it's hard to know which one's the right one. So before this podcast, I thought, I'm going to go back and listen to check how I say it. And in the intro of that podcast, I get the example the wrong way around. I say it's Roo like moo, not Rao like cow. So for this episode... Despite it being heavily discussed in the past, I call him Rue up until the point he refers to himself as Rao at one point. Bless him, he doesn't correct me. But the fact is, I actually went back and did the research. But idiot me in 2015 got it wrong in the intro, even though I'd just been told. I'd just been told it's Rue like Moo, not Rao like Cow. And in the intro, I go, joined by Rao, sorry, Rue, it's Rue like Moo, not Rao like Cow. So I just say it completely the, the wrong way around. So just as a little insight to everyone, the way I'm remembering it is Rao like aroused. Because Rao is a very s- sexy man. So Rao like aroused, not Rue like ruined. Now that's going to, now that's because that can be used in a, 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 anyway. I don't know where I'm going. My head's all over the place. Um, It's a wonderful chat. I think you're going to really enjoy it. We're brought to you as ever by speechdevelopmentrecords.com. That's where you can get all my merch. And patreon.com forward slash scroobiuspip, which is where you can support the podcast for around a dollar or two dollars a month. And that helps pay the best producer in the game, Buddy Peace, who I was going to ask. I was going to do a recording now of me going, row, row, row. Rao, and ask him to edit in the correct pronunciation every time I said Rue. But I decided it's best to be honest with these things. Openness and honesty is important. So there we are. But yeah, I think you're going to really enjoy this. And as I said, on the Patreon, you can support, help pay Buddy, help pay John Harris, help pay Jared, the people who, who are behind the scenes on this beast. Jared Robinson, as I full named John Harris. I shouldn't be vague on these things. This intro makes no sense. Thank you all for tuning in these past few weeks. And I'm glad you have been because I'm not really on socials at the moment for reasons I won't go into. But as one thing that's kept me on socials in the past is the fear that everyone will miss the podcasts and I have a responsibility to the guests I have on who are kind enough to give me their time to promote the episode to get as many people as possible listening. And I've not really been doing that because I've not really been, as said, on socials. But um, there's been loads of you listening. I mean, I'd I'd love it if you lot, even in lieu of me posting anything, ramped up word of mouth if you really enjoyed an episode. If you tag me and stuff, I'll still probably see it at some point. I'm popping on and off. But yeah, anyway, this is episode 506 of the Distraction Pieces podcast with Rao Reynolds of Enter Shikari.
let's. I mean, let's do all the catching up on 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 the record. I'm joined today Sweet. by Rue R- Reynolds of Enter Shikari. How are you, sir? I'm very well. Yeah, we're uh, in cloudy Wolverhampton, about to play the second show of the second leg of our UK residency tour. And um, yeah, I feel a bit less stressed than the first leg. So yeah, I'm, I'm happy. Where are you in Wolverhampton? I went to uni in Wolverhampton. I dropped out after a year, but I I went. I did go nice. to uni. I attended some classes. So yeah, that, I that's lived there exactly for a the bit. same as me. <laughs> yeah, I, I did the year and then ran away. We're doing uh, what's it called? The the steel mill. Yes, okay, steel mill is it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, sh- I should know it as we I only played it, well. it four weeks ago, but <laughs> I'm sure that was where I first saw head PE. Okay, of, of of all bands or head P, depending on on different people's pronunciation. In really in the depths of my new metal era, and their DJ would sk- skateboard around the stage in between nice. in between his his sections, which was uh, awesome. a hell of a thing. Uh, <laughs> what did you do at uni for a year before before calling it a day? Um, I did music technology and composition right. at uh, Hertfordshire. But yeah, basically that was just when the band was like really kicking off and we were taking on tours that meant I was skipping so many classes and then it just got to the point where I was like, okay, can I have a year out? And then that got to the point where as well, actually, can I have two years out? No, no. And so that was it. That feels like it's a course that's... The name of that course looks like it's literally what you have to do to be the front man of Enter Shikari. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) It kind of of covers all the bases. I love it. But the thing is, I didn't really... I I think the second year would have been much more interesting, but I I didn't really learn much from the first year. Um, Yeah. I remember the classes where I was taking the Akai, the the, original Akai sampler. We had like Mm. a a whole like section on... On that and that was awesome quite difficult but awesome but yeah other than that it was just like oh not really getting much out of this yeah i just, just want to be playing shows i had the same man i was doing photography and i think anything in the arts it's such a weird one to be graded in as such because the arts are so subjective and for me uni was great because they had equipment i couldn't afford so yeah. i i could use a dark room i could use all these 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 big Hasselblad cameras and all this dope stuff, which I would never have been able to get my hands on. But from the creative point of view, kind of sounding similar to you in the band, all the best work I did was nothing to do with uni. I was doing loads of photography right. that wasn't part of my course, but using all their kit and then almost yeah, yeah. folding in the bits that were there kind of, here's what you need to do to get a grade. And yeah, I did a year of that. And obviously we're going to talk a lot about society and governments and stuff and I was just not comfortable getting in that much debt for for an education I I did the first year it was just after the grants had been stopped I did the first year and I was like man this is spinning me out to be potentially Mm. coming out of this tens of thousands of pounds in debt yeah it's wild and it's only got worse since (laughs) yes it's got a lot worse since but speaking of time passing you're you're one of the most requested guests that I've already had on this podcast. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> because you came on, on, on so long ago, I have you and Sarah Pascoe are two that people often say, oh, you should get them on. I'm like, yeah, I, I should, but you know they've been on, right? You like, yeah. Go back and listen to that, because you were, it was in 2015, which is 
Wow. The year before everything started going to shit, really. And I mean, I'm sure if you listen to that episode, we will be talking as if everything has already gone to shit. But it was 2016 that was Brexit and Trump and Prince died and Bowie died. And it's such a mad year for bad things happening. It's really... I get a bit of insomnia and often I'll go off on spirals of like, that's got to be the year that we went into some kind of simulation, right? Because it was too... (laughs) There was too much crazy shit all at once. So... Yeah. yeah, I mean, how have you been? How were you going through th- that year? I know as someone who is v- very politically conscious, someone who is who is an artist and has to kind of try and draw something from these times, all of those things at once are a lot because there was a lot going on mm. politically and a lot of, as said, amazing musicians leaving this earth. So, yeah, have you yeah. got many memories of 2016? It sounds like a weird one to God. throw at you, but... Yeah, how was that period? That was like a really disorientating, frightening time for me personally as well, because I was like going through a breakup from like a seven-year relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, my nan died. My nan was like pivotal person in my life, li- lived with wow. us for very for many years. And I had like the first panic attack that I realised was a panic attack, I had insomnia, didn't sleep for a week, you know, like that. The sort of 2015, 2016 period was just mental for me. So I ended up, that's why I wrote the the, the Spark, our album, which is kind of our, our most, well, for me as a lyricist, like personally revealing. Yeah. Because I felt like I finally, almost like I had, uh, someone had given me the the okay that I can now write about personal things because enough shit has happened to me sort yeah. of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's only like, for instance, on that album, there's only really one overtly political track which is take my country back which is obviously inspired by brexit and everything that was going on and just the that general kind of shrinking of the world and that outlook that the problems are out there you know and just blaming everything on on people from other countries other cultures whatever but the rest of the album was kind of it was still political because i believe what i was you know all i was saying was that like I'd come to the conclusion, or no, not the conclusion, the realisation that we're fragile creatures, incredibly fragile creatures, but we're, especially as as, as males and especially as British males, we're forced to think that we're not fragile. Mm. And so that was what a lot of that album was about. And I think that in a way it was political because at the, you know at that time we were experiencing Trump and, you know, there's a man who's incredibly fragile but has been told from birth that he can't be. So he's just morphed into this you know, monster. So yeah, it was like a, a, a weird marrying of like personal disasters and like social disasters. It's, it's it's weird how those things can can come along at the same time in your personal existence mm. and in the grander societal existence. Um, I saw a friend, someone who's a pal and I think has got a good outlook and everything, doing a post about the war against masculinity recently. And I was like, ah... Like it's not like someone who I'd, I know social like on social media. I was like, ah, oh, I didn't think that was you, and it got me thinking about it a lot because I think that obviously the war on masculinity is some dumb shit, but also I think it's so dumb because I think we're at a time where masculinity is embraced more than ever. It's just not based on gender, like masculinity and and femininity are both things that should be embraced more than ever. But we shouldn't be. It shouldn't. It's not restricted to the traditional male and female genders anymore, you know? And yeah. it, it it makes it so dumb that there's this war on masculinity when I've got loads of of gender-free friends or people of varying g- genders, non-binary friends and all 
like sorts of things like that, that embrace masculinity. Yeah, mm. it's seen it be, be, because there's also men who are embracing, admitting weakness, admitting their feelings, admitting, you know, um, all these personal things. It's then seen as this attack on masculinity. It's like, no, it's just you're worried about men not being like you used to think of men. That's the reality yeah. of this. It's not It's not masculinity that's a threat. It's It's your idea of a male. Yeah, it's like a this traditional uh, sense of the male. It's like this warped, reduced version, you know, yeah. whereas a male should only act in these ways and only show these specific emotions. You know, usually some form of anger is the, is the only, like, allowed emotion, you know, traditionally, especially in kind of Victorian Britain. Yeah. But yeah, it, it, it's, it's strained when, I mean, for instance, you know, we just talked about Bowie and Prince, like, these are people yeah. like for decades have been like trying to expand, you know, whether it was subconscious or conscious, uh, trying to expand what masculinity is or, or should mm. be. And we're still having, you know, the same problems and the same but that's fight. That's the thing. It's, it's not even the steal. It's the mistake, like the, mis- the miss, or the inaccurate thing put forward at the moment is that all these changes in trans culture and all these things are new and they're bad because they've come out of nowhere and they're this new thing. The idea of two genders is the new thing. There's, there's like throughout mm. the in all sorts of societies, there's been multiple genders and all things like this. And the big thing at the moment that um, drag is dangerous for children, like they need to ban drag book readings, all that kind of thing. It's like motherfucker, widow twanky. Like we literally, uh, I went to 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 pantomimes. All of us went to pantomimes as a kid. There's drag is a key part in pantomime. It was never any threat, any risk, any danger. It's the the thing that is new isn't drag queens doing readings to kids. It's people thinking there's anything fucking dangerous about that or sexualizing yeah. drag as a default. Like, I agree that we shouldn't have s- sexual performances for young children. Yeah. Regardless of gender, regardless of, <laughs> of, of choices, regardless of anything else. It's but yeah, it's this weird thing. It it blows my mind that people get hung up on all these, as I said, these new things. As someone pointed out that in Big Brother Series 3, I think it was, Nadia, a transgender woman, won Big Brother Series yeah. 3 or 4 decades ago. And it wasn't yeah. a big deal. There was, obviously she got a bit of backlash, but she was adored and it was a positive thing that she was accepted for who she is. All this stuff. It's like... It's really recent history that we're turning on all these things and thinking all these things are bad. And Bowie and Prince are prime examples there. These absolute fucking icons who were Prince in particular. I don't associate a gender with Prince. <laughs> That's a being. That's just this, that was mm. this amazing creature. Yet, as I said, it's it's all seen as these modern wokeness and all this other bullshit. Yeah. It's really interesting how, how these things are so easily framed in the media without really any scrutiny. Like the smallest scrutiny, you go, oh no, look, 15 years ago, no one had a problem with this. It's the problem that's new. It seems to be that sort of the classic or one of the classic faults of of social media that it amplifies the extremes to the Mm. other side, you know, the other political side. So, you know, the the people who... um, they they see that one video where that you know there was someone doing some kind of sexual performance and there were kids there and then they're like right everyone now is tarnished with that brush every performance is obviously yeah. like that and their yeah. view is just completely warped but, but because that's what social media does it, it it amplifies the extremes to 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 everyone you know regardless of your 
point of view. The the things that are going to get the clicks are the things that are, whoa, that's fucking insane. I'm going to retweet that. Oh, I'm, and everyone else sees it and they retweet it. And then therefore they think, oh, well, that's obviously the norm. When actually that was just like the one, you know, in, mm. in a million things mm. that it was that was like that. Yeah, it's, it's wild, man. It's such a weird one, man. I mean, social media is something that you address in the, in the new record. It's one of the topics that you talk about. What is your current relationship with social media? Because it is such a weird dichotomy. There are these. I'm currently off social media. Like I'm, uh, I'm, nice. I'm, I'm not engaging at all, and it's a weird one because <laughs> it's come about because of reasons I didn't expect. If you know what I mean, I, I won't go into. Okay. It. I've been saying for years I need to to get off of it, and then I've I've kind of dropped off. But I know from f- f- following you and being a similar kind of social media user to you at times that it's been really important to me for getting causes across, for getting petitions signed, for getting, you know, protests, all sorts of things. Where do you sit on the the positives and negatives of social media, I guess? I feel like my general view is becoming increasingly negative. Um, yeah. You know, even from just like small scale, like personal experience, you know, I, I feel that like most people, they follow, you know, people that, they respect or support or whatever and they probably don't realize that those people have exactly the same reaction on social media to you in terms of like you know i find myself scrolling doom scrolling or whatever mm. for like you know literally sometimes for like half an hour i'm sat there and I'm like suddenly i'm back in the room and i'm like, jesus yeah. i've just wasted half an hour like i haven't really learned anything and that that's one of the most frustrating things for me is the the time where you're just like you know, reading tweets, like sh- little sound bites of things. You're not learning like the things like this, you know, long form conversation, like sitting down, reading a book or reading an article, like th- those things now seem like such an effort. And I have to make like, I have to like put that time in my schedule. Otherwise, mm. all those those moments of, of, of freedom to do these things are taken up with just like soundbite, scroll, soundbite, scroll, soundbite, oh, argument, scroll, oh, that drama, scroll, you know, it's yeah. just... It's um, exhausting, really. I think, especially with Twitter at the moment, like I, I don't know how long you've been away, but the new, the default uh, for you uh, homepage, instead of, you know, instead of the following page, the actually defaults to for you now. So you're just offered up, you know, things that obviously the algorithm thinks you're going to be into. And it's so interesting how much of it is drama and how much of it is actually completely unrealistic and abnormal in terms of like, how we would normally speak to each other, you know, what, what, mm. how we speak to each other in the real world. I mean, obviously I think there's, there's probably a slight decline there as well in the real world, but like, it's just weird to me to think that people, you know, young people growing up now, I really hope they don't think that that's the norm just to be constantly argumentative, constantly take everything in bad faith. It's just utterly exhausting. Yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm trying I mean, to limit it, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, exhausting is right. There's been some amazing stuff studies recently, and I'd go off on tangents if I'm reading about something at the moment, but there's been amazing studies recently about the plasticity of our brains, about the fact that for for a long time it was kind of thought, oh, if if I have tendencies towards overthinking or depression, then that's just how my brain is. I can't do anything about it. Or if I'm an introvert, then that's just how my brain is. I can't do anything about it. There's been all these 
studies about how that's wrong. And, and there is this amazing plasticity to our brains that allow us to mould it and stuff. But one of the things that they've also found is the kind of two halves of the of the, the brain thing is, it's kind of a myth because they work together. But yeah. what we're really understanding more now is that one half largely has language and one half does not. So it's harder to track and, and read. And like, I don't, I, I want to get into it, but after reading all of this, but part of nurturing and allowing the half of the brain that doesn't have language as much, which is there for contextualizing and and analyzing and and putting things in the right position for the other half to then deal with, rather than it just constantly being analysis, is is downtime. So um, meditation is finding periods to allow your brain to switch off and not be focusing on anything other than breathing or something like that, even not mantras and things. And reading that just made me think, I honestly don't think my brain's had any of that time in decades, because if I'm not listening to a podcast or sitting on social media, I'm watching TV or I'm overthinking things, there's no point that there isn't a voice in my head, if it's my voice or the voice of of social media. And yeah, it's really interesting to, to see that, Again, you look back to when we have all of the great breakthroughs in history and in 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 the human brain. They're all periods where there would be these periods of of downtime, of mm. of non interruption. Um, yeah, it's it's an interesting one. And again, I think it's easier said than done. Right? It's really hard, particularly in touring business and things like that. It's really hard yeah. to have those periods where you're not thinking about t- t- tomorrow's gig or the issue that you're having with this place, or the, the ticket sales here, or whatever else. It's kind of, it's constant. Yeah, I, I'm trying to remember. I think it was um, Einstein who, who talked about the importance of, I'm trying to remember how he phrased it. It was either like no time, or yeah. like nothing time, or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was, um, it's not not even like, maybe he was unaware of like, much of the the, the sort of benefits of meditation or anything, but like, he just described it as just literally doing nothing and how important that is. And like, mm. so not not even like setting yourself a sort of meditative task, just just sitting yeah. and seeing yeah. what arises, which, yeah. you know, is is a form of meditation in itself. Yeah. Um, of even if you yeah, sort of don't plan it that way. And yeah, so it's just something that we're not taught to do. We're, we're not... Yeah, not even, I think we all, even if it happens, if we sort of find ourselves daydreaming, like staring out a window or something, you can come away from that sometimes feeling refreshed without even, you're like, oh, yeah. you know, what what just happened? That was black Phil. And it's probably because your, your brain is like just gagging to be like, just let set free for a bit, you know, instead of just like either being used on some task or like be, getting lost in like anxiety, rumination, you know, whatever. Um, yeah. But yeah, that those those moments are pivotal. I try and like meditation for me is something that I've tried to keep consistent for, well, well actually since 2015, 2016, it well, sort of became yeah. a, a tool in my toolbox that I, I've gradually started to learn over the years. And But it is so hard to keep it consistent because yeah. there's no, there isn't really an innate, in, certainly not immediate reward to mm. it. Um, and a lot of people get into meditation because they think, oh, it's going to make me feel great. It's going to make yeah. me feel, you know, at ease and, and comfortable. And it it can do, but also it might not. You know, it might just be a short escape and something that's quite hard and something you have to work at. And it's only after sort of months of it that you start to realise, you know, compare yourself to 
a few months ago, like, oh, actually, yeah, just in my general life, I'm more thoughtful. I'm more kind of engaged. I'm more focused. I'm more compassionate. You start to realize, oh, there's all these like things that have come out of that. But because it's such a long process, sometimes you don't think that those um, great results are because of the meditation. You sort of, there's no, there's no immediacy to it. So you don't link the two, which is then is the reason why you stop being consistent in your meditation practice. And, and then you drift my back. It's, it's, yeah. it's a weird one because we've really built an immediacy-based society and um, immediate result, like we want a magic p- p- pill for everything, but and mm. just a results-based society. And I think that can be a bad thing in politics because I've had this argument before where there's been something that we're, we're rallying against or protesting against or whatever, and someone kind of says... Like, but what difference is it going to make? And it's like, well, it doesn't have to. Like, sometimes the right thing is just the right thing to do. Even if you know you're going to lose, it's important to be in that fight just because for your soul, for who you are and for where you stand in society. So I think that's a worrying thing as well. And I think it is partly responsible for some of the political kind of acceptance of all the bad shit that goes on. Because there is that, mm. oh, what can we really do, though? It's like, at, at, at time, number one, we can make a difference. But number two, at times, it's not even about what difference can you make. It's about these people are wrong and you need for you to stand up and, and express yeah. that and and get the, that out there. But, yeah. I mean, it's I guess it's like nihilism, isn't it, really? It's just that, that idea that we're completely powerless. What's mm. the point? Um, there's there's a, a couple of moments on the album where I... I really concentrate on on power the the new album latest mm-hmm. album's not even out yet but um, yeah because it's just a fascinating thing like if you have power um and you know looking at the people who have the most power the most wealth today you probably want your society to feel powerless especially if you're a sort of authoritarian figure the more people feel powerless whether they are or they aren't mm. the less likely they are to act and and that's just like for me that's it's really formed how I think about like societies and how I think about activism and just that, that idea of the allure of nihilism and just drifting into, I am useless, worthless, you know, helpless. I can't change anything. That's exactly how the, the mindset that the, you know, power figures, uh, I, I know it sounds rather reductive, like evil power figures. But like, Let's call them the Tories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. We don't have to hide it. Yeah. But yeah, I, mean, that, I, com- that, yeah. I completely agree. And it's 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 an interesting one because um, as an example, I think there's tons of reasons for people n- not to vote if they choose to. I think there's, a, a, again, I don't think it's productive, but I think people can have valid reasons. For example, no, I'm not going to give an example actually because it will just start more shit. But yeah, there are reasons <laughs> to not vote. But the reason I won't accept is they're all the same because... They're categorically mm. not all the same. Like, UKIP are not the same as L- 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 Labour. Does that mean I think Labour are great at the moment? Nah, but they're not the same, and the Tories aren't the same as Labour. It's like, that's the one argument I won't accept, and the reason I rally so hard against it is because it's the argument that I had as an anarchistic teen, as a growing up as a little punk, oh, they're all the same. And then you realise, no. I remember going years ago, going with Billy Bragg, knocking on doors in in Raynham and Romford to get the current, to make sure the current racist party, it was Nick Griffin and his lot, to make sure that they don't get elected. 
and you talked to people in those communities and Nick Griffin and his lot, you know, actively harassing, actively just mm. making their lives m- miserable, that's different from Labour's uselessness at the moment or whatever else. Like, like there are parties that will actively attack and damage areas of society and that's different from from whatever you think of 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 the other parties it's uh, yeah it's a weird one i think the only way that i've begun to think about it is is separating my kind of desire for progress from from politics basically and from voting so like i feel like the sort of rational thing to do is just vote for the marginal betterment of society. So vote for Labour, even though I feel utterly uninspired mm-hmm. uh, by Starmer. And then that, you know, that's just one act. That that's not where my exactly my that. influence ends. You know, and yeah. then I just turn. Okay, I've done that. That's done. And now, what can I do where, to actually, you know, do do my bit to improve society? It was easy, easy example. It was important to get Biden in. Now it's important to keep a boot on his neck. <laughs> As, yes. as such, because he's yeah, not doing, yeah. he's, he's again, there's ups and downs, but it, yeah, there's no longer that illusion of you get the Tories out and the game's won and we all cheer and go off. It's like, as you say, that's act one. I think that's the perfect way yeah. of putting it. That's the first step. And then... And I just, I don't think, you know, it's kind of trite, but like, I don't think the change we need is going to come from the top. Like, it's just mm-hmm. as simple as that, really. Like, that's what I, I think, because I, I have been on both sides of that argument, like, you know, I know I'm going to vote vote green because that's probably where I'm most uh, aligned, even though that would be a wasted vote, mm. so to speak. I've been on that side of it, yeah, being on the sort of just going to vote Labour because it's marginally better. But yeah, at the, at the end of the day, that that's that's not going to make much difference, unfortunately. Like yeah. the the power structure is so so strong, so cemented in our minds that like it. it it's it's gonna protect itself regardless of who is in power. So it's elsewhere that I think changes is, is is gonna come. So yeah, and, and people don't seem to realise how far the Tories have gone in recent years and how untouchable they seem to feel. The fact that really brought it home to me was seeing earlier this week Theresa May in the Houses of Parliament arguing that these new immigration laws are illegal, are unacceptable, and all this. And it's like, I think back to when Theresa May was in power and thinking, she's the worst, this is terrible. And you think yeah. that she's now on, you know, she's now the reasonable v- yeah, yeah, yeah. V- voice in this thing. Because through the the, the Boris and R- R- Rishi and kind of that week that Trust was the, the <laughs> one, um, they've just got more, or through getting away with so many more scandals and so many thought more things. They've got more and more just outlandish and kind of like, oh, we'll just mm. do this. And obviously having to appeal more to the extreme sides of politics. And it's a fucking yeah. horrible mess. There's that classic, uh, the Overton window, mm-hmm. isn't it? They've just like shifted everything to the right. <laughs> so those who were formerly the, the devil now seem uh, the, rather angelic. The one good thing that Trump did is make people aware of what the Overton window is and and and, and how that works. Because he was a big one yeah, on that. Because yeah. of such extreme claims and, and stupid things, it kind of, it was the easy example. Um, and let's move away from this for a little bit. Because <laughs> it's going to get heavy. We spoke a little bit about social media and about how people communicate. You're someone I'm a fan of. I consider you a, you, you, you a pal. Event at Shikari come up in conversation. I'm like, oh yeah, I know. Well, I, I know, Rue. I looked and the last time I reached out to you, 
was to let you know I really liked your new haircut. And I'm both sad and happy about that because <laughs> I'm happy that that's a joyous thing. I was so excited. Like, I'm liking things and that. But <laughs> when you first went over to this, like, mad mullet, I was like, mate, I need to let you know I am all over this. This is <laughs> this is the one. So Excellent. I enjoy that, that level of communication. <laughs> but I, I think communication is an interesting thing because of the pandemic as well. How was that period for you, again, as as a, as a person and as a, a, a musician, a band, you know, an act who go out on the road and share these interactions with thousands of people all the time? It seems, mm. in my touring days, people would ask how you play the same songs every night or whatever and does it get boring? It's like, no, but there's a different crowd every night. So it's, it's genuinely different every night because that connection is different. Something makes a different song pop and things like that. How was that l- lockdown period, that pandemic period for you? And then we'll get into coming out of it because that was also key for you guys as a band. Yeah, it was It was weird. It was disorientating. Um, it was quite scary. Uh, well, obviously it was for all of us, but like, yeah, I, specifically for me, my thing was that I basically lost the ability to write music which was so strange like I've been lucky like as a songwriter I'm I'm sort of the type of songwriter that can always write I mean it might not always be good (laughs) but like that's for the filter um but yeah and you know I've 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 written music written something new every week of my life since I was 10 I think I started writing music with with Chris our, our bassist and yeah, so for that year and a half, as soon as we stopped playing shows, you know, the, we released our previous album, Nothing Is True and Everything Is Possible, right at the start of the first lockdown. So that was a just thoroughly weird experience, mm. you know, not being able to to kind of tour that, not being able to celebrate it. You know, we our album release party was on Zoom. Wow, it was just like just really depressing, you know. Yeah. After you put, you know, your your soul into a, an album, making something for over a year. As, as independent kind of artists as well, you'll know from day one, the only control you have is getting out on the road and getting it in people's ears and getting in mm. in people's towns to let people know about it if you've not got the budgets to have billboards all over the place. So to have put all this time into an album and then go, all right, now it's just, we hope, people hear about it we hope the algorithm allows people to yeah. hear about it as such yeah yeah it's mad it, i mean it definitely gave gave us like such a sense of gratitude for our like our real kind of core supporters because they were brilliant they, they just sort of took over the job of, yeah. of our pr basically yeah. um because that. that was the only way it was back to word of mouth really yeah so it was a very strange time and and losing that that outlet you know that that sense of like writing music is how i often how I sort of structure my thoughts about myself, about the world. You know, it's it's an obvious sense of catharsis. Um, It's it's my creative outlet as as a sort of creative person. So to take that away was just very strange. And I had a bit of a, almost like an identity crisis, you know, because we weren't playing shows and I wasn't writing music. So I went to Shikari, was Mm. dead. It it was a non-entity. And since I was 16, 17, I have been Ralph and then Shikari. So I was, yeah, I was just saying, like, who am I? What, you know, what is going on? So a lot of the stuff on the new album is very much kind of soul searching, thinking about identity and, and everything over that period. Um, so yeah, it, it, it was pretty grim, especially that it's like, I know that I, I think it was the minority of people who, who experienced it like I did in terms of like creatives. 
Um, or it certainly seemed that way because, you know, you're, you're sort of scrolling through your, your friends and your peers on, on social media and everyone was in the studio. Everyone was being super productive, bringing out this and that. And I was just like, shit. There's just me in my garden trying to stay sane by growing yeah. veg and reading. And um, I, I mean, luckily I had, I wrote the sort of accompanying book for the the last album. And that was basically where I just poured all my, my kind of energy Um because that was that just involved a lot of research, so I could do that. Um, but yeah, in terms of writing music, I couldn't. So it was a, a strange, strange period. And how was it to come out of that? Because you guys headlined the Download Festival pilot event, which was like the first mm. UK live event in the wake of the pan- pandemic. How was mm. that? Because it's I'm sure seeing that happening, it struck me as a weird one. Because it's like right, this is so essential and so needed, but also kind of scary because are we ready to, is it the right thing to do to be coming out of it is this the right time all all these this kind of mix of emotions again because of the way our government handled this pandemic it wasn't necessarily simply a celebratory it's all over now it was no. a can we do this how do we how do we live so yeah how was that as an as an experience i mean yeah it was a total cocktail of emotions yeah. i mean of course it was madly euphoric because it just everyone just felt like they'd been caged and suddenly let out so the the whole festival site was this menagerie of mayhem but yeah at the same time it was just like there was that sense of should we be doing this i mean after i think everyone sort of hushed up that the fact that there was a lot of transmission of covid over that 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 festival but yeah i suppose it was at that point where you know everyone was starting to be vaccinated and stuff and it was there, there was like glimmers of hope and and it felt like it just felt like a relief, you know, just to be back in a muddy field again, and to be, you know, to see friends in 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 all walks of life, but friends in in other bands, and it was also a great celebration of like British talent because it was obviously it was a fully British bill, so it was my head was uh, exploding with, with trying to sort of what perspective to take up. But on the day, it was just a blur of euphoria. Yeah. Um, I, I think you know when when you've done so many shows, they they do blur into each other a lot but like i remember when we played the dreamers hotel which was when we played the dreamers hotel live for the first time so a year and a half after wow, we released yeah. it which i hate because i always feel like you don't truly know a song until you play it live you know 100%. that's where it sort of finds itself and that, yeah that moment i'll i'll never forget that's burned into memory because the, the the energy was just incredible and I, I can remember walking off stage and we were like quite tearful really because it was just like such a release and it was only, it was pretty much that, that was, it wasn't like suddenly I could write music again, but that was kind of the turning point where I was like, okay, I, I felt like I've received that sense of purpose, that sense of human connection, felt that energy again. And I felt just the li- little sprinklings of like, oh, little urge to like write and like, oh, I've got an idea. And I, so that, that was a massive relief as well. It's mad to have had all of those feelings all come back at once and realize it was that kind of connection that was missing but I I mean I also want to add if I didn't feel it was a massive cash or if I didn't feel it would look like a massive cash grab I would have re-recorded every album I ever did just after the album's promotional tour because I completely agree I feel the songs change completely I need a month of doing it I need Mm. a a month with those songs on the road and then it kills me if the original song comes on because I'm like no that's not how it goes that's 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 not how that song's meant to go fuck (laughs) That's how you all hear it. No, 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 no. I forgot that. I've, it's changed now. So, yeah, yeah. it's weird how, how music can work. But 
I mean, that connection then must have inspired a kiss for the whole world because that album, the new album, is about reconnecting and restating your mm. claim and falling back in love with what you've been missing has been missing from your life. So, how were those emotions to go through? I guess on performatively, like again, it's it's a weird thing with writing from your heart because you, for me, and I want to hear hear how it is for, for you. For me, it's a deep experience in the writing. And then as soon as that's nailed down, it kind of takes it away from me. It's it's handed over. It now belongs mm. to the audience or to the song or to the beat or whatever else. So how was that for you? Because clearly, as said, emotional times, fuck, leading up to the pandemic, during the pandemic, you know, and all of that. How was that to to write kind of positively about connection? And did you get to keep hold of those emotions? Yeah, I, I found it's, it was a similar experience to our previous album, The Spark, because I found that everything I was writing was really quite overtly positive um, and upbeat and energised and just like exciting. And it's only sort of retrospectively, I suppose, that I've realised it's because I was excited. <laughs> you know? I was excited to write again. Yeah. Like, And for me, one of the, the most like palpable feelings is relief. Mm. Like, you know, whether it's like, I don't know, you've had like a medical scare, but then it's going to be okay. Or, or or someone you know has, but then they're going to be okay. Or, you know, something to do with your, your job or livelihoods, whatever. But like when you experience relief, for me, that is like, it can be almost crippling euphoria. And that's that's what I experienced when I started being able to write again. And again, not immediately. It wasn't like, you know, open the curtains one day and all this music started flooding yeah. in. But um as I started to build up a kind of arsenal of like new ideas and new tracks started to form, I was like, oh my God, okay, I can write again. Mm. I like, I haven't lost it forever. Because I genuinely thought like during the lockdown, I mean, none of us knew what was going to happen in, in, in the world. And I, I didn't really know whether I would be writing again, whether I'd have the urge or the ability or the will, you know, that just everything had just been sucked, sucked out of me. So yeah, that sense of relief was just massive. And yeah, therefore the the real thrill of writing music had, had never been as strong. And after I'd written like the bulk of the music, we I was reading um, Henry David Thoreau, Walden, Into the Woods. Um, and I was just thoroughly inspired, of, inspired by that, which was strange, I guess, a period coming out of a lockdown when we we're living our solitary lives. I wanted to recreate it and what he did and go and live in yeah. the woods. Um, but yeah, that's what we did. We hired a, a very old, dilapidated farmhouse um, down on the south coast in the middle of middle of nowhere, like nothing for like two miles around us. It completely off grid, ran on solar power, so we couldn't boil a kettle and record a guitar at the same time because it. it couldn't take it. Um, so yeah, and just you know, we were cooking for each other, chopping wood to keep us warm because there was no central heating, and just and recorded the album, and it was just such a. Oh, just a beautiful experience. Just It was just the four of us and our engineer, George, and it just felt like it really, as you say, it's like reconnection, a rebirth, really, of, of what Anishikari was, especially after going through that period of thinking it was it was all over. That's amazing. And, and it's really interesting to hear that kind of the gradual r- return after feeling it was all gone. How did that play into collaborations? Because, again, collaborations can often mm. involve a level of imposter syndrome or nerves or or whatever else, but particularly if you've gone through kind of losing the ability to write and the, the void stares back with 
Wargasm, who are amazing, and then the Bull, or, or B- Bulls, sorry, with Cody Frost, who I was unaware of until you sl- slung that video up. And I was like, who is this being? Like, the most engaging, it was absolutely mm. blew me away. How were those kind of things when, when you've gone through that period of not being sure who you are, you know? Because the, the, mm. who you've always been stopped for a while. Yeah. It's, it's taken me a long time to be comfortable with, with collaborations because, you know, even with the band, like, I'm, I'm the songwriter, so I'm like, I'm, I'm writing. It's a very solitary, mm-hmm. emotional experience for me. So I think it wasn't until it was a couple of years, was it before the pandemic? Yeah, 2018, 2019, where I did a lot of pop writing and just, like, pushed myself to write outside of Shikari. And it was a, a fascinating experience for many reasons, many negative, mm-hmm. but I learned that, it well, it just it just boosted my confidence at the end of the day, and I was like, okay, I can, even though I'm can be quite socially awkward and and introverted, I can sit in a room and I can contribute and and I can feel comfortable. Eventually, it's not easy, but I can do it. So yeah, that just propelled me really to to collaborate more. And um, you know, it's 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 not like we we kind of sent the line out to to people that we didn't really know that well. We we were already friends with Wargasm. We've known Cody for 10 years. She started coming to our shows a long time ago. So they were like, you know, they weren't um, daunting figures to to approach. So that always makes it easier when you already have a a genuine connection with the the other artists. And yeah, they just, they were actually just both great experiences. Like the Wargasm one was was really fun because they they properly went in on it. You know, it's not like we just like gave them a verse or whatever. They, They did some production yeah, and both their vocals really added to the track. And it, that was because, actually, um, of the download pilot, because they were playing that. And that was, I think it might have been the first, maybe the second time I saw them. So they were sort of at the back of my mind as I was writing that track. And I was like, oh, I can hear their voices on this. And then, yeah, Cody, I mean, yeah, that was just like a no-brainer. I, I was writing Bull, and I wrote that melody, and I could just immediately hear her doing it. And she um, works with Dan Weller, who's great friend of ours has produced a load of our previous work and so yeah that that was just easy to to do and she absolutely nailed it and she's on tour with us at the moment um and she's yeah she's smashing it how how was the 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 journey into pop writing in that period because i think i find all that stuff really interesting my only brief experience was a failed one like really early on um it's not pop pop writing even but writing for other people really early on Liam Howlett reached out and wanted me to write some Prodigy stuff. And I wrote some Scroobius wow. Pip stuff. <laughs> and he kind of went back to him mm-hmm. and he was like, like, this is dope, but it's not Prodigy stuff. And it was too early in my kind of career as an artist to, to understand that, right, I need to write in another mindset. I need to change my approach. I just went, yeah, well, give me some beats and I'll write how I write. And that was of no use. But yeah, how was that as an experience? I've never <laughs> done anything like that. That's since so it's always that it's that failure that I learned so much from if you know what I mean like I, I look at it positively yeah. and as a beautiful thing and me and Liam are still pals because of it but, but yeah how was that how awesome. was that experience yeah it's very strange I've it was like a pushing myself out of a, my comfort mm-hmm. zone thing basically and I did some stuff in Norway like you know trying to get in with all the Scandi pop songwriters because yeah. they're just they basically own yeah. pop. <laughs> and then like went to Poland, did a few tracks for some Polish um, pop artists and rock artists. And it, yeah, it was just a complete mixed bag really. But the, the, the sort of, 
main things I took away from it is sort of what I expected. Like it is a conveyor belt. There is no sense of genuine artistic, like I don't want to say merit because that's a bit harsh, but like giving, you know, there's no like presenting one's soul on a plate. Like there's no poetry or real attempt at human connection. Um, It's like, oh, this sounds good. Oh, what, you know, what will, what, words will fit this and that there's no will to story tell or or to connect so it's it was a bit soul destroying but i still found it fascinating mm. and sort of wanted to continue to learn more but i guess it's just a completely different headspace it, it, it's the true you think of the art as a commodity yeah. you know this this is the thing that's going to get this artist to this point, you know, the manager wants, they, they give you like three reference tracks and they want something that sounds exactly like that, like literally. So it's just a, it's a very different experience because I've always been the type of songwriter that likes experimentation. I get excited by exploring new ideas, new new instruments, new genres. And that that's how I write. And I like to have a very varied palette because life is varied and I want to write about different emotions, different experiences. And this was just the, the total opposite it was like imitation really and and often like to the point of pastiche where it's just like we this is a hit song at the moment we think this artist can make a very similar thing and have some degree of success Mm. we would like you to uh make this happen just odd yeah just very just very odd you know but like I, i don't really do it anymore i much prefer like getting in a room with an artist and getting to know them and if there's a way i can help them reach you know whatever potential they they want to reach then I'm, I'm more than happy to be involved but um yeah it's it's been an interesting learning I love process really stuff like that as an experience though man like like to do those things mm. and even if you again it sounds like a weird comparison but it's been i moved in, into acting a fair few years back and the big thing for me as much as anything has been reading up on stuff and finding the things I don't agree with or I don't connect with as much as the things I agree with. It's it's as exciting for me in a way sure. to get through a whole book and go, no, I didn't really connect with loads of that. There's there's one bit there, but I don't agree that this is this and all that. And I think those things can shore up your, your own artistry outside of it. So again, I'm sure all of that experience helped Shikari in a weird way because it's just, right, that's not what I want. Yeah. That's not... A, but I did like that part about it. And this small bit here was mm. was really interesting. Um, you spoke about r- writing from the heart. And I remember talking, again, early days t- t- to Billy Bragg. I'm going to s- start wrapping this up in a minute, I promise. And he was saying so how good. weird it is that people think of him as a political songwriter because there's one, maybe two political songs on every album. All the rest are about love and about emotions mm. and mental health. And I connect that with you guys because, again, I'll think of you, I'll think of you, I guess partly because of activism and stuff like that, but I'll think of you guys as very political and then I'll think through a lot of the songs and go, well, there's not that many of them that that are actually overtly a, a political. How is that and why is that? Because I know for me, like I have people ask, every time there's a big, big political thing happen, because I had a few political songs i'll have people kind of say oh you need to come back and you need to write about this and the reason it doesn't appeal at all is sadly and depressingly every political song i wrote still applies every angry political song i wrote 10 years ago 
it's still valid. And that breaks my heart. I dream of the yeah. time it's it's irrelevant and it doesn't make any sense. But it's like, I've got nothing to add to that. I've already said that we should be picking yes. up bricks and smashing things. It's like, that's as far as I could go. <laughs> There's not a lot more I can say on this. So how is that for you guys? And how is it as people, like as a responsibility to be a political voice and 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 and, and to make a stance? Well, yeah, I feel an, an immense amount of pressure. I think that was po- possibly one of the things that also held me back from from writing. You know, every time something happens in the world, you, you, I get like a load of yeah. tweets or, you know, pictures of people saying, oh, I can't wait to hear the next Enchikari album. It's going to be great. And it's just like, well, oh, that's a, yeah. a small consolation for yeah. all this shit I'm that we're really going sad. through, isn't it? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. My mind's just gone completely blank. Yeah, what or was... just, uh, no, the reason your mind's gone blank is because I talked for ages and didn't really frame any of it as a question so <laughs> no, that's no, completely like, on me my friend no, 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 how do you feel as with that pressure to be a political band when you are also a band who writes about mental health about connection about l- yeah. love about all these other things and they don't seem to I think why a lot of bands will steer more into that in their later careers because there doesn't seem to be pressure on that that's you, it's your personal outpouring whereas with Political stuff, as you say, every time something will happen, people will be ready for you for your response or your reaction. Mm. And how do you, yeah, but how do you find that pressure? Yeah, well, I think we've had twists and turns with even just the being framed as a, a political band or whatever. You know, we used to just. I remember when the second album came out, which was when we the lyrics became a lot more overtly political, and we were just like, we just called it the P word. And so as soon as you say that in an interview, people switch mm. off, and so we just like step but we just like we don't want to be known as that yeah. and like when people hear politics they just think of old white men bickering like that <laughs> you know in suits and in wigs or whatever yeah. else you know it's it's a really sort of outdated thing and it, it kind of drives people away whereas you know what we're interested in is getting people more involved which seems such like a foreign thing these days because we're all so removed from politics you know as we spoke about earlier we have we get to vote every four or five years whatever depending on what country but you know it's we would be much more interested in a more deliberative contemplative contemplative Mm -hmm. (laughs) however you pronounce that word um democracy you know where we're, we're all way more involved and that's the norm it's not something that we run away from because it's just full of money and corruption and and what what it is today so yeah, I don't know. I I, I just write about everything. Like I, I suppose on that second album, I was extremely angry, and you—that's a powerful motivating emotion. And you therefore you write about things that make you angry, and and I suppose that's how we became to write about politics because that's what was was making me angry. And then you you know you live your life, you experience this and and that, and then you end up writing about all sorts of other things. And that you know that's what that's what drives me. As I was saying earlier, like it's it's the the broadness of the palette mm. that keeps me as thrilled to write as the first day I, I picked up a pen or a guitar. You know, it's it's if I was writing the of, of a much more hemmed in sort of reduced version of, of what Anishikari is now, I don't know whether I could be as hopefully authentic as as we are now because I'm sure I would be slightly bored i mean if you're doing anything over and over and over again you will get bored it will become banal or at least you'll you know what what we normally say is you you become an actor Mm. rather than a musician and that scares me a lot and that's something that i i think certainly subconsciously i'm able to avoid it because of my 
upbringing and and I was inspired by so many different types of music and I was very lucky to have all of these types of music thrown into me so it's within me to have this broad palette um but I think it is also a conscious thing because I know if if I'm not working with a broad palette I'll I'll feel you know like someone's putting a dam up in in front of me and I can't use the the full breadth of um inspiration that I want that I want to use I love that and it's beautiful to hear and see and 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 feel that passion and excitement coming across when you are 20 years into in in into mm. being into Shikari. That's an amazing thing. So to kind of wrap things up, I yeah. guess what's ahead? What do you see as as the next 20 years? You don't have to go into the full 20 years, but yeah, what's ahead <laughs> for you and for the band, man? Well, we certainly only, yeah, take it, you know, a day at a time, a week at a time, which is sometimes to our detriment, I think. <laughs> but at the moment, we're just, we're looking at Sam Dunk. Yes, we're, we're working on the production and the set for that. We, I think that's going to be our most ambitious show ever. There's a, yeah, a lot of thought that's going into that one. And then, yeah, it'll just be, you know, touring, touring the world, which still seems like a ridiculous sentence to say, mm. you know. We're off to Japan in a few weeks, which is, I remember the first time we went there and I was like, what am I doing here? And it sort of still feels like that, you know, this is, this is a place that I'd never thought I'd I'd go to. The, the, the furthest afield I went before the band as a kid was Guernsey. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and then here I am about to go to Japan for the seventh, eighth time or something. So it's, um, yeah, it's uh, it's going to be a very, very busy year. Yeah, looking, looking forward to it. Slash anxious about the amount of sleep deprivation and intensity it's going to yeah, be but yeah. it's going to be an intense one but again the in a way there's been some experiences there that will have re-energized you to appreciate all of it and uh and 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 mm. to be in that zone but i appreciate you taking the time man as I said it's always a pleasure to catch up and uh it's been Absolutely. far too long so uh thank you for taking yeah. the time no thank you so much thanks for having me again really appreciate it no problem mate You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was Rao. I hope you enjoyed that. And I hope you all remember how to say Rao's name now. I mean, I know I'm banging on about it again. But the funny thing is, is, is I've gone back and listened. And at the start of that original episode, I say I'm joined by Rao Reynolds. Is it Rao? Is Rao right? So I got it right the first time. Rao confirmed I had it right. And then somehow my dumb brain has second third fourth fifth sixth and seventh guessed itself to be bowling about calling him rue anyway rue is 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 that the name of of zendaya's character in uh in euphoria that's not a bad a bad mishap then that's a great character a great performance anyway i'll be back next week oh how good was that 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 brandon cronenberg episode last week I was really pleased with that. I was really excited to talk to that dude. Um, if this is your first time tuning in, go back and listen to our previous episode and just have a dig through the back catalogue, I guess. There's been loads of good people. Anyway, I'll talk to you soon. Until then, stay safe and stay sane. Ta-ta. <laughs>